You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange with me, Arthur Parkinson and Sarah Raven. In this episode, we're going to be talking about stalwart summer flowering perennials like cosmias, Japanese anemones, asters, echinaceas, veronicastrums and scented flocks. So, Arthur, what are your favourites? Well, I'd love to say echinaceas, Sarah, but every year I plant them, almost, and they never come back for me. Um, but I know you've got some beautiful varieties at Perch Hill, which are quite newly bred ones. So maybe next year I'll treat myself to one called Marmalade, which is the most lovely sea anemone, drooping, petaled creature. Mm. I think they've got stronger, haven't they, in recent years with, with modern breeding. I think the thing with Echinaceas, particularly those fancy ones uh, like Marmalade, which, as you say, they look like rosettes at a gymkhana. They've got, they're all sort of uh, froofy in the middle but I think with them they really hate being overcrowded so what we found here in we did a trial of them I think it's four or five years ago actually and there were beautiful ones called like summer salsa and summer samba and marmalade and strawberry shortcake all these crazy names but what we found is that they just if you overcrowd them or overshadow them with another perennial they disappear. So they are best actually in a, either right at the front of the border by the path so that at least they're not being overshadowed in, in sort of that whole area of their route or in a cutting garden setting, they thrive because of course you've got a, a row of them and then there's a path both sides and they've really, really got incredibly strong, good clumps there which come back year on year. And um, I love them because of that wonderful, rich, summery sort of cocktail mix of colours, but also the form. And they've got a vase life of nearly two weeks, 10 days to two weeks, I'd say. Mm. I'm so sort of busy that I love doing flowers that I know are going to still be there, you know, not just a week later. If you cut the stems, change the water, wash the vase, put them back in, takes like two minutes rather than having to go and pick a whole other arrangement. So that's one of the reasons I'm so fond of them. But I, I definitely think the ones that I like are the greeny ones. And there's one called Envy. Oh, yeah. And they're just, there's a beautiful one with a, which is green with a pink tip. And yeah, they're like whirly gigs, aren't they? They're like Catherine wheels mm. on the 5th of November. And uh, they're just beautiful. I, I really like them. The the traditional pink one you can grow from seed, can't you? You can. Yeah. Yeah. Echinacea purpurea, uh, sort of pinky purple. Absolutely fantastic for pollinators. And of course, mm. any of you who are into herbal medicine, echinaceas are incredibly good stimulant of the immune system. So traditionally, you would start consuming it in either a pill form or in a tea or whatever. Uh, as you move from summer into autumn, winter, when there are lots of colds and bugs around, because they boost the immune system, so that you don't um, you don't you don't get infected. And actually, funnily enough, it's so interesting that with COVID, of course, and all of us wearing masks, no one has got colds. It seems to me, and flu has been so hugely down. 
But just in the last two or three weeks, I've been around three or four people who've had a stinking cold. And it's funny, it's like it's a summer cold, not a winter cold. But anyway, echinacea is what they need. So it's, <laughs> um, it's got lots of good uses. I also love the Astrantia family as well, do you? They're, they're, which is so good for dappled shade. And they're flowering now. But what I find is if I really carefully either pick or deadhead them, they keep going twice as long. So they're another mm. thing that I would really recommend for summer vases and for a summer cutting garden. Yeah, and the slugs don't eat them either, no. do they? And they thrive in dappled shade and they look like they've got that very architectural jagged flower, which I think is is just so, it's such a sort of calm, mm. beautiful flower. They have a slightly odd smell, I have to say. But um, so as a cut flower, oh, that puts some people off. It doesn't bother me, but... They're very good as a pressed flower, though. Yes, they would be amazing yeah. because of that incredibly architectural shape. Yeah. And then what, what other ones would you recommend for sort of summer border fillers? Well, uh, a phlox that you introduced me to, which I would literally spend any pocket money I had on, phlox blue paradise. Yeah. The most gorgeous Caribbean lagoon blue diluted with purple it's like a, a shot of vodka with naughty e numbers in it <laughs> and it changes in the light uh, i'm going back to my teenage years days. Of, of nottinghamshire but yeah <laughs> um it really it really is like an ibiza shock color yeah but it, it's i've got it a lot at my yard in the back garden because flocks do do fairly well in dappled shade they will do at their best in full sun but um they they do well for us and um all we do in the spring is stake them with silver birch, just a triggy nest for them to grow up through. And they do really well. And every year we get more flowering stems. So we've got probably two clumps, which are probably three years old now. And from those clumps, we must get easily a dozen beautiful flower heads. And they last for weeks. I always pick some because of the perfume. So if you're, I think if you find sweet peas of faff, you definitely need a garden with flocks in as a compromise to have something centred for picking because they really do smell beautiful. And I mean, at Perchill, we've got a whole row of them. And in regardless of what colour they are, the scent is gorgeous. And they seem very, very resistant to anything. I can't think of anything that really damages them or goes for them pest-wise. Mm. And they get bigger and better each year. You do have to choose your varieties carefully, in my experience, because ah. some of them get mildew very badly. But oh, but you're right. totally right. Blue Paradise never does. And then if you like white, which we endlessly debate, uh, there's another variety called David. And it has got incredible scent. And it, the thing I love about it, we have it in the farmhouse garden here, which is the sort of white, pink, mauve palette. And it flowers from mid-July often until right to the end of September and it doesn't get mildew at all and it's got wonderful, wonderful perfume. And so I think I love a big vase of that and I love it in the garden. But mm. there's one thing with a lot of flocks and I've really noticed it with David, in a hot, dry summer, you go and look at it and the whole thing is just wilting. It's just literally sort of... Yeah, I've seen that. Perch yeah, hill. and I think it's our clay soil. Mm. It just it turns into concrete and so what I do in that situation is I just, I get a hose pipe or a drip irrigation or whatever, and I just leave it on for a good 20 minutes. So it really sinks down deep into the root mm. and then it completely recovers for about a week or even two weeks, but it will need that again if we have no rain and we have a very dry summer. And um, I do think yeah. that um, flocks will cope absolutely fine in sun if they have moisture or 
you know, they, they don't want shade and drought. <laughs> so dry shade doesn't do for them. No. But they'll do in shade if if you um if you give them a good watering and same they'll do in the sun, but you've got to you've just got to keep watering them really well. They're wonderful. They're definitely one of my favorites. And in terms of a cut flower, what I do is in front of the window in our sort of living room, we've got a, a big flat stool and I tend to put a big vase of them there and I sear the stem ends in boiling water for 15 seconds. And then every two or three days, I go out the French windows and turn the bunch upside down. So I take it at the stems out of the vase and I give them a vigorous shake and I really, really, really shake them and all the about to drop flowers then fall off. And then literally you get more flowers opening and developing. And I cut mm. the stems, put new fresh water in, a good slosh of vinegar to to keep any bacterial growth down. And then they go on for another week. And it's just wonderful. I absolutely love them. Brilliant. And so you also love crocosmias, so don't you, Arthur? Yeah, I do. I don't love the ones that are kind of like the matte runner type ones, which have small flowers. Yeah. I love Lucifer, which you've had in the Oast Garden now for years on end, and it's really robust. Um, You get wonderful foliage in the spring from a clump. And then just when you need that electric orange, out come these beautiful trumpet-like dragon flowers, you know, a dozen on each stem, which is held above the foliage. They're very strong. So unless you're in a really windy place, they don't normally need staking. But if you want them to behave within a mixed border, it is good to do, you know, a silver birch or a hazel corset just around the foliage so they don't then flop onto other things. But yeah, I really love Cosmia lucifer. And it's one of those plants you always see for sale at the garden centre looking glamorous in, you know, August. Mm. And they'll charge you a fortune for a pot with like two in. But if you get ahead and plant them in the spring as the corms, they're a very cheap little corm to buy. Mm. So, you know, for a low-maintenance garden on a budget that you want to be very fireworky, um, I couldn't recommend uh, Lucifer more. I think there's another one called, is it Burning Embers, mm -hmm. which is quite similar. I think that flower's a little bit later, actually, and it's a bit more short. And I love Emily Mackenzie, yes. which you would yeah, love if lovely. you don't grow it, because it's it's got that deep orange base and then a crimson sort of mm. heart to it. And so it looks like our favourite fruit, which is a blood orange. It literally reminds me yeah. of a blood orange. And then there's a really rich crimson new one that we're growing here called Hellfire. And um, oh. that's very glamorous. I, I like that very much. And of course, there are more apricot ones, but I'm not so keen on those. No. And you also get the seed heads, don't you? If you, yeah. if you leave them in the garden, they have very attractive yeah. seed pods for the winter months. In fact, I think they do. they can look beautiful if you if you can bear to leave them and then the seed heads are all frosted with that foliage, which just gives a dense brown, it will give the garden quite a bit of structure into the winter. Yeah. And then moving on more to more shade, a couple of shade perennials that I'm very, very fond of here. And we have along the north face of the garden school here, we have a bed that is really pretty unpromising between the car park and the building. And it looked pretty dreadful for years. And then we decided to put in these quite elegant ivies, which is called bird's foot. And it looks, it's, it looks like a sort of palmate leaf, quite elegant. And they're trained on uh, metal teepees, metal sort of obelisks, actually. And so they go all the way down. And then between them in the bed, which is sort of the bays in between, 
we have a mix of acanthus, which is classically, of course, a sort of Mediterranean sun lover. But there's a variety called Rue Leden, which has got white flowers, mm. mildew resistance, and very, very happy in shade. And I'm really, really, really obsessed by that at the moment. It's just, it's evergreen. It looks good. Well, it's evergreen here uh, anyway. And it really is good 12 months round. And just now it's at its best with these great spires of, of those spiky calices and then the white trumpet flowers. And then interspersed between that are lots of different Japanese anemones, which of course famously flower right the way through from late summer until autumn. And again, if they start to wilt, I just put a hose on them for 10 or 20 minutes um, at the root and just let them get a good, really good drink from that. And they just go on, on and on and on flowering. And just like Crocosmia, I love their seed heads. They look like little drumsticks on a stem. And they're beautiful sprayed silver just as a rather elegant single stem for the Christmas table. I, I love them. What other perennials have you got in Mill Yard that you really rate for kind of summer into autumn? Well, I mean, I do, I don't have that many perennials here, really. I've got cardoons, which yes. um, are the hardier relations to artichoke, and they really are fantastic for a beautiful big goblet of a flower, which, you know, bumblebees home into. I find if I let them flower, though, the foliage gets very tatty, so I strip the foliage down and just leave the flowering stems. And then once the flowers fade, the whole thing gets chopped to the base yeah. because I keep the flower heads for Christmas. But then you get fresh foliage and it's a wonderful silver grey foliage, which is very complementary to um, even the bright and brilliant colours really that I that I grow. So that's probably the most abundant perennial. Another perennial for foliage that I grow a lot of is bronze fennel. Yeah. And if you cut that down, I find bronze fennel often gets ahead of itself when it's tulip time. So I often give it a, several trims through the year to keep it nice and bushy mm. and not engulfing other things. And if you do that, you won't. It won't have time to self seed. So mm. anyone who's fearful of bronze fennel seeding everywhere, just just chop it, mm. and you'll just it'll keep sending up lovely fresh growth, mm. and it won't just run itself to seed. Because once it does go to seed, the the lovely feather duster like base does get raggedy like the cardoon. So they're two foliages really for summer. If you've got a hot hot garden. I love Michaelmas daisies, the asters. Mm. Only two, actually. I think it's September Beauty, mm -hmm. which is a very magentary pink, very tall. And they're very old varieties, so they've got lovely foliage. I don't find that they get mildewed. I think the key thing is, as you've been saying with all these things, is to, to water them through the summer. They get a good mulch in the winter of well-rotted manure around the crown. Not over the crown, because that can make them rot, but just around. And um, I'm also feeding them through the summer with, with seaweed feed. Whenever I'm watering all the pots, the little slither of sort of herbaceous border that we've got, which is kind of like in a raised brick slice that borders our garden onto our neighbour, any spare feed I just slosh on there. And that, I find, does help to keep the mildew at, at bay. The other aster that I grow is a beautiful, really, really deep purple bordering on royal blue. It's called Violetta. Mm, it's beautiful. And uh, the bees absolutely love it. They, the one thing I love about the asters is they really, really do go on and on into the depths of winter properly, even when the cosmos is starting to look like they're on the last legs. The asters are kind of like the last firework in our garden. So I couldn't recommend those two old aster varieties more. Yeah. I'd really love to add to that, not on asters actually, which I do love, but 
there's a bit of the I have a bit of a kind of maiden aunt reservation about them. They just are they're still mm. to me a bit old fashioned. But I've got to I've got to rethink that because of course they're not and they're incredibly long flowering. But the thing that I love most as summer goes into autumn, which I'm not saying it is yet, but to prepare for it is the salvia family. And oh, yeah. it's sort of, in a way, it's so obvious and I've gone on about salvias perhaps too much in a way. But I just think that whenever I go out into the garden in October or November and I make myself sort of give marks out of 10 for the plants that are looking good that day, for those last two or three months of the gardening year, it's definitely the salvias that win hands down. And, you know, whether it's the utterly super stratospherically famous Everybody's favorite plant, Salvia amistad, which is a cracker because it starts flowering in May, June and goes on flowering until, well, basically winter, so November, December. Or I really love the one called Involocutra hadspen or Batolii, which is, it look, it reminds me of a lotus flower. It's got this really swollen calyx and then this absolutely dazzling, brilliant pink velvet flower salvia flower coming out of, of of the calyx and they're just unparalleled in still pumping out that volume of color even into november and december and uh, that just you know really cheers me up a lot and then there's all the little ones like that beautiful dark purple velvet which is called nightlight in dutch and my dutch accent is not good but it's called i think nacht linda um or vlinda and I love Serapitosi, which is a, a sort of a pink that looks like a kind of slipper. And, oh, I don't know, there are just so many. Phyllis Fancy. And then there's, of course, mm. the one that likes damp, the swamp salvia called Oliginosa, which is one of the few plants that is truly properly turquoise. It's that amazing, really? you know, Aegean sea blue. I love it. But it it doesn't love it mm. here somehow. I, I don't know why. I've I've planted it several times and it's... It struggled, but it does well in my parents' garden. So all of those mm. are just absolute must-haves. And, of course, now-ish is the time to propagate them. And so you could buy a plant at a garden centre now and bring it back and immediately make 10 plants. So you would, from any of those salvias, you would just take out any shoot, whether it be a side shoot, to be honest, or a main shoot, it wouldn't matter, and you then go through the propagation of cuttings as you do with anything pretty much, which is number one, you remove the tip because what that does is it stops the growth hormone pushing up and growing upwards. And because it's got a scar where you've pinched out the tip, so the growth hormone then pulls and pushes out the root, which is of course what you want. Number two, you remove any of the foliage that will be below the soil level because of course it will rot. Number three, you push it around the edge of the pot so that the cuttings are wide enough space to not be touching. And number four, you will remove any large leaves, even at the top, leaving only one pair intact at the apex of the plant because you need those to photosynthesize, but you don't need much else. And if you do that with salvias in the next few weeks, you will have even more for next year because they'll root really easily pot them on six weeks later into individual pots, store them through the winter until the frosts are over and then out they go into the garden. So that's why we have so many salvias here because they're just so easy to propagate. 
I'm going to do that with um, a salvia that's been delivered this week called Amanti, which I saw at Perch Hill last year and you only had one in the cottage garden. It was the most gorgeous, oh, like mulberry jam. Yes. Fuchsia pink. Yes. And I, I just fell in love with that. And I, I remember saying to you, wait, what's this new salvia? We've got to have it everywhere. So I'm hoping that um, we've got lots to plant out this summer at Perch because yeah. I'd love to see a big pathway of that but i'm going to have it here so i'm going to do what exactly what you've said after this podcast it's not um it's not as vigorous in my experience amante oh. i don't know it's not like amistad it's not a sort of quick grower i mean mm. you know maybe we've put it in the wrong place but certainly where it is it, it's looking good i mean oh good I, I, these these ones arrived as little nine centimeter pots and then two liter pots now oh, so maybe good. it likes it here in nottingham okay <laughs> we'll see oh that that's encouraging i love seeing the bees on salvias because yeah. Obviously, salvias were from the jungle, aren't they? And I think a lot of the flower shapes are for hummingbird beaks, not bumblebees. Ah. And so the bumblebees, you see them, they bite into the corella mm. and steal the nectar. Mm. And they really love that nectar, don't they? Yeah, they do. I mean, the herb and rose garden in the ultimate perch hill is... You can't really walk down some of the paths because we have the natch lindas, don't we, which really billow. Yeah. And if you do, you, you disturb so many bumblebees, you think, well, no, I'll go a different way. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And of course, on top of all of that, they're an edible flower. And pineapple sage oh. is a classic for putting over a, over a pudding. And actually, I find Serapatosi has quite sort of pineapple tasting flowers. And then there's another one, a newish one called Royal Bumble, which is a really lovely scarlet, mm. but with crimson um, stems. So it looks almost like a beefeater. And uh, yeah, oh, they're they're just a wonderful family, and of course, they're rich in sulphur, so we use them a lot here under planting our roses. But we've already done a mention of of that in an earlier episode, so I won't go through that again. But they are a very good point to finish on. Although I thought we might just give a recipe as well, and. As we're on edible flowers, I thought we might do a really lovely recipe, which is smoked haddock fish cakes with nasturtium used as the black pepper. So it's literally, it's such a lovely, easy thing to make. So you've got your mashed potato, you've got your smoked haddock, just as you would with any fish cake, but rather than putting lots of black pepper into the mashed potato, you put nasturtium which you just tear up and just put them in and they amazingly keep their color in the fish cake and then what I do is I do the classic to get crunch a triple layer so you do flour then into lightly beaten egg and then into breadcrumbs which have got lots of nasturtium petals in them as well and then you fry them so it's the classic flour egg breadcrumb shallow fry and those serve with a reduced tomato sauce and a green salad is a perfect sort of high summer meal. And the nasturtiums just really give it that extra lift. And you could then scatter salvia flowers over it if you want it. But <laughs> the link there is, is slightly tenuous, but it is with edible flowers. But overall, that's, a, I think, a pretty good sum up of the perennials that we both think are important for this time of year and that a garden would be lacking without really i don't know if you've got any others you wanted to add but just veronicastrum oh yes well remembered uh, again a very tall lovely rocket for a border i mean I, i've got it in a garden that's fairly dappled shade it does love full sun but it will cope in dappled shade and um 
yeah, it's very hardy, comes back year on year. Slugs don't seem to eat them. And wonderful lilac to dark blue flowers, depending what variety you go for. Yeah. And the bees, just bees and butterflies, they will be on it all day from dawn till dusk. So Veronica Astrum, I'd, I'd just like to add to that department, Sarah. And great architecture and fantastic seed pods. Well, thank you very much for listening, everybody. And next week, we're actually going to be incredibly practical. So it's not going to be about plants, but more about how to look after them. And we're going to concentrate on summer containers because now is the time that we tend to go away on holiday. And we've got to remember, if we've got summer containers, what are we going to do about watering? What are we going to do about feeding? And what are we going to do about deadheading? So we're going to make it super practical next week. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahoven.com.